0: In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Welcome visitors to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about the terrifying things we can ingest into our bodies and minds. I want to extend a warm thank you to all of you who helped support the Potapalooza project last weekend. It was a rousing success. More than 70 podcasts contributed special episodes of their shows, including us. And the live streams were a lot of fun. And if you happen to miss it, it's not too late. Just go to plza.org and check it out. It's pay what you can, and all the proceeds go to help those hit hardest by COVID-19. And if you're looking for people who've been hit hardest by horror, have we got some stories for you. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we're reminded of the old adage that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. At least that's how it goes. But when you're trying and failing to please your husband through your culinary skills, it can be an emotionally devastating experience. In this tale, shared with us by author C.J. Robinson, we meet a woman whose desire to please has been exacerbated by the side effects of the medication she's taking. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert and Aaron Lillis. So don't stop trying to produce that perfect dish. Let no menu seem too daunting. After all, don't you want to meet a husband's needs?
1: I know, now, it was the side effects.
2: Her left hand nervously gripped the loose fabric of her skirt. The gleaming diamond on her ring finger caught my eye for a moment before I returned my gaze to her face. The side effects?
1: Yes, the hallucinations.
2: Even though bags hung from her eyes and deep lines curved her mouth into a thin frown, Mrs. Crowley was quite beautiful.
1: From my medication...
2: Why don't you start from the beginning, Mrs. Crowley? I clicked my pen.
1: Oh, are you sure? I don't want to bore you.
2: Her eyebrows raised and her hand twisted hard at her dress. I insist. Would you like some coffee or water before we begin? My voice was calm and gentle, easing the worry lines out of her brow. She smoothed out her skirt.
1: Oh, no thank you. Well, I suppose it started two Tuesdays ago. You know, the 18th? Tuesday is almost always mushroom chicken night. I know it's not Davy's favorite, but I'm just so tired on Tuesdays from taking care of Ellie's girls all day, and the the recipe is easy. Ellie? She's our neighbor, single mom, works most days. I try to help out when I can, but to be honest... Sometimes I feel... taken advantage of, you know?
2: Mrs. Crowley stopped abruptly and glanced over at me. Her thin cheeks flushed. I gave a small smile and
1: nod. Sorry, I don't mean to complain. It just started out as once every week or two, and now it's up to twice a week or more. I understand, I, I really do, but I have things to do too. And to be honest, I don't really like kids.
2: That's all right, Mrs. Crowley.
1: Well, like I said, Davey usually isn't a big fan of Mushroom Chicken Night, but that night.
2: The woman's dull blue eyes shined.
1: Well, he never, ever compliments my cooking, or baking, or cleaning, or anything really. In fact, he hardly talks to me at all anymore.
2: The middle aged woman quickly swiped at her eyes with the back of her long hand.
1: I understand he's busy he just got a promotion recently I'm very proud
2: I reached across my desk and handed her a tissue which she dabbed gently with you don't work Mrs. Crowley her mouth thinned to a line
1: I did at one point Davy didn't like it said I had to quit and be prepared for the children <laughs> After we found out about my medical condition, well, I just never ended up going back.
2: Her hand fluttered in the air in a flippant motion, but she brushed at her eyes on the way down. Was that about the time you started taking your medication?
1: Oh, no. It wasn't until a few years later.
2: The chair squeaked as she leaned forward and lowered her voice as if we were passing a secret. I bent as far forward as the desk would let me.
1: Like I said, I'm not too fond of children. I was only a bit upset, but only because Davy was. He really had his heart set on a big family. After that, Davy really dove into his work. I understand, I really do. As for my medication, they changed it recently. That's why I wasn't used to these side effects.
2: So what happened last Tuesday?
1: Tuesday the 18th. That night he raved. He loved the food, he loved me. It took me a few days to figure out what it was. I was so ecstatic, I made it again on Wednesday, hoping for the same response, but nothing. And when I say nothing, I really mean nothing. Davey didn't look at me. He didn't even bother to grumble about mushroom chicken like he normally does. I started early on Thursday, making it again and again while he was at work. I really was hoping to find the secret of my success on Tuesday. I was on my fourth version of mushroom chicken when it suddenly dawned on me what it had been different on Tuesday.
2: Mrs. Crowley straightened her back and lifted her chin. Suddenly realizing how hunched forward I was, I sat up too. What was it?
1: It was the blood.
2: The blood? She nodded vigorously.
1: Yes. You see, I had cut my finger on the soup lid on Tuesday. I tried to be meticulous, but a little must have gotten in. Yes, that had to be it. It was the only difference between Tuesday and Wednesday. So I cleaned up the kitchen. It was a disaster from all my attempts. Instead, I made a simple dinner of spaghetti and meatballs. Davy usually likes this meal about as much as mushroom chicken. But that night... He went back for thirds.
2: Because you added blood? My pen moved mechanically on my notepad. The first notes had trailed off into indecipherable scribbles, long forgotten.
1: Well, I thought so. I know now that it was only the side effects making me think that way. I did it again on Friday to the hamburgers. But he'd only kissed my cheek and said it was nice. Saturday, I barely got a response at all. He just smiled and nodded.
2: The woman bit at her lip.
1: I feel so selfish saying that. Three weeks ago, I would have loved for Davy to smile and nod at me. He would have left me in a tizzy for days. I guess I got greedy.
2: She smiled sadly.
1: I understand. I really do. He just got a promotion. It just gets lonely.
2: Mrs. Crowley fumbled a bit with her purse, pulling out a cigarette. Normally, I would have objected. Today, I threw open the windows and dug a glass ashtray out of my desk that hadn't seen the light of day since the 80s. I even lit it for her. It was the least I could do.
1: You see, I had added a lot on Thursday, mostly by mistake. That's why my Davy didn't like Friday or Saturday. For Sunday's chili, I decided to really dump it in. It left me woozy smelled terrible bubbling on the stove. But Davy liked it. He sat back and patted his belly. I'd never seen him do that before. Monday's lasagna didn't get quite the reaction I was hoping for. So Tuesday's mushroom chicken day, I decided to add a slice of skin as well.
2: Her hand shook as she ashed her cigarette, but a vibrant smile graced Mrs. Crowley's lips. It made me feel ill.
1: It was hard to do. Well, that wonderful filleting knife I have made the actual cutting incredibly easy. That company has certainly earned a lifelong buyer. I think that fillet knife had been a wedding present from my mother-in-law. The blade flexed against my skin just like it was supposed to. I got a very nice big strip right in the first go. It was the mental aspect of it that made it so difficult, you know?
2: Did he like it?
1: He called it delicious. Can you believe that? He claimed I could get a job as head chef in any restaurant. I tried the same amount of skin on Wednesday. No response at all. He was so disappointed in it, I could tell. So on Thursday, I used a finger.
2: She paused for a minute, lost in thought.
1: I think it was harder than filleting my skin. The bone was an issue for me. I had been feeling terribly ill and weak since about Sunday. Oh, perhaps that was also a side effect of the medication.
2: Maybe it was blood loss? She cocked her head to the side a bit and crinkled her nose in thought.
1: I suppose. In any case, I was much too weak to cut through bone with a knife, so I used the wire clippers that my Davy keeps in the garage. I had to place the cutting board on the floor in order to get the right leverage with them. It was an awkward angle and the bone took a while to get through. Not stupid, though. I've seen plenty of doctor shows to know that I had to cauterize the wound. I had a knife heating on the stove. The overall process was a bit more difficult than I thought. The wire cutters hadn't given me as clean a cut as I would have liked, and I had to maneuver a lot of torn skin. It was worth it, though, to see that big smile on his face. I filleted the skin away from the bone, stuck it in the food processor, and mixed it with beef to make it into a nice big meatball. He told me it was wonderful, a delicacy. He licked the plate clean but he said he was still hungry. I suppose that's how Friday ended up how it did.
2: What happened Friday? I was filled with morbid curiosity. I already knew, but wanted to hear anyway.
1: He was so excited. He's never home early from work, but I think Davy knew I was making something special.
2: A blush rose to her pale cheeks and her eyes turned far away.
1: He wouldn't leave me alone. Kissing me on the cheek, sneaking tastes. I actually had to shoo him from the kitchen. I didn't realize that the forearm had two bones in it. If I had to do it over, I would have gone for something a little stronger than the electric carving knife. It took forever. The cauterizing didn't work as well this time. I think it was the way the splintered bones jutted out of my arm that made it difficult to get all the spots. But I don't think Davey minded. I only used a little salt and pepper to taste and he absolutely devoured it.
2: Fumbling for another cigarette, Mrs. Crowley's purse spilled all over the floor. She frantically tried to scoop it all back in, the remains of her heavily bandaged right arm waggling in the air, unbalancing her. I stepped around my desk to help. She offered me a cigarette, but I shook my head. Mr. David Crowley had returned 9 p.m. on Friday to his wife passed out in a pool of blood. He'd been away on a business trip for over two weeks. His wife's right arm had been missing from the elbow down.
1: Like I said, I now know it was all side effects of my medication. (laughs) Davy wasn't even home.
2: I rubbed my brow, trying to figure out how to tell Mrs. Crowley that hallucinations were not a side effect of her anxiety medication. And, although the kitchen had been smeared in blood... Her severed arm had not been found.
0: Santa, that jolly old fat man with sinister magical powers. Wait, what? Oh, well, I mean, I I guess they are sinister, aren't they? He can conjure gifts out of nowhere and deliver them down chimneys that are far too small for him to fit through. But that didn't stop us as kids from asking him for the weirdest, wildest requests. In this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid we meet a kid who's desperate to replace certain members of his family. I join Matthew Bradford in performing this tale. So don't be afraid to ask for what you want, but do be afraid because you might just get it. Like this kid when he tells us, I asked for new parents and I got them.
3: In the two-bedroom apartment I called home, the screaming and shattered dishes never seemed to stop. Maybe for a few hours when Dad would glare at my mom, whisper some seething comment that made her wilt where she stood, and then storm out the slammed front door, off to the local bar. My mom would sneer and aim her pent-up misery at me, muttering about how she wished she'd scrape me out with a coat hanger or drown me in the toilet during my first breath. They both hammered it in. I was nothing good except a tax deduction. Dad would return around three in the morning after the bars had closed and it would start again. The yelling, the stomping and slamming. The slaps, tears, and shattered glasses. I began reading to escape from it, getting lost in the words on the page. The books painted places I wished to fall into along with my pattering tears. Everything seemed so wonderful in each world I'd read about, but after a crash of thrown remote or the shattering of dishes or a closed hand across a cheek with a meaty slap, I'd be ripped back into my miserable childhood. When the school began decorating for the holidays, we had an activity where we wrote Santa with a single request. It couldn't be a material possession of any sort, but a change we hoped to see. Mine came out through my shaky pencil on that lined paper before I even had a chance to think it. I'd blinked and read it with surprise, just as my paper was plucked from the cold desk. New parents, in small lowercase writing. The last thing I believed in was Santa, well, God being a close second, so I gave it no thoughts until the weekend. Friday night, my dad told me to pack up some clothing as we were headed to the mountains in the morning. I woke early as the mist rolled down in blankets from the rain. It was a dreary day, and I just wanted to hide in my room and read, but the glare I got when I'd shown hesitation from my father spoke volumes. He'd flashed those glossy red eyes at me, and then squeezed my wrist so hard I feared it would snap.
0: Don't make me repeat myself.
3: I stuffed my ripped backpack with a few articles of clothing and brought it into the back seat of the rusty station wagon which stank of cigarettes and bourbon. My mom held her head low, her dark hair covering her purple, puffy eye. The engine roared and my dad flipped through the radio stations, punching the scan button with a fat, hairy finger until country guitars twanged through the fuzzy signal. And we were off. We drove in silence. My mom's head frozen at an angle to view the world rolling by outside, unable to even face either of us. My dad chain-smoked, boxing the car with nauseating tangy puffs that burned my eyes. I tried to suppress my cough, but one escaped, and his thick neck swelled as he turned. His red, pocked face stared intently at me as his nostril twitched and lifted the corner of his lip with anger. I quickly looked down at my book, ignoring the car sickness which multiplied from the buzz of nicotine. Dad finally turned back to view the oncoming traffic past the rainy windshield. My stomach rose as the car leaned back from the steep incline, and soon autumn colors peeked out of the haze. Lovely gradients of fiery reds and yellows decorated the valley. It was stunning. It looked like something out of the fantasy novel I was reading. I tried to ignore the clink of shells in the box under the driver's seat. My dad had brought his pistol and his ammo. I knew pistols weren't for hunting deer after listening to the drunken threats so many nights. I knew they were for hunting people. Remember
0: this place, Barb, after speaking the vows that you so lovingly kept?
3: Mom just ignored him and lit a smoke. The small cabin came closer into view as we turned, a little log building with dark stained wood and dusty windows. Loose shingles jutted out missing in places like lost teeth. A dark fence of rotting wood sagged and leaned around the perimeter. The car slowed to a halt in the wet leaves, and we stepped out into the mud. My father led us to the cabin door. He knocked a few times, then looked over the shoulder of his corduroy jacket before forcefully ramming the door a few times till it gave in with a thud. He stepped inside, and my mother followed. Then I... I knew we had no right to be there even at that age, but I didn't care. I even liked the idea of something different. I hated being home, and even though the cast of our fucked-up family sitcom was the same, the change of scenery was welcome. The cabin had a tiny room all to myself, and I unpacked the few articles of clothing I had with me, as well as the book I was reading and my thrift store toy. I heard my parents talking and even laughing through my closed door. Later, we ate some canned pasta they'd found in the cupboard. I twirled the slimy meal with my fork as my father smiled and asked me what I'd been reading. He nodded his head, clearly not listening to the answer, focusing on the pressure he applied to squeeze my mother's hand until she squeaked a pained yelp. I ignored this, as I'd learned to. I'd only confronted him once before, and my mother then slapped me so hard she knocked me out cold. I awoke to my father throwing me through the glass pane of the sliding door. A bruised wrist and dislocated shoulder kept me out of school for a week, so nobody would be the wiser. It was a week spent with them, a week without escape from it. I never made that mistake again. I hurriedly forced down the soggy canned pasta with an averted gaze, letting my dark bangs obstruct the view of their sadistic games and I returned to my designated room to read as soon as I was dismissed. Out the small room's window, the sun sank pink in a pool of amber behind the trees. I watched with teary eyes until the magma on the horizon dimmed and the sky grew cold and blue. I kept thinking about the carton of bullets under his seat. I had an unshakable feeling I wasn't ever leaving those woods. The thought was interrupted by coarse shouting and vile insults spewing out just beyond the door. The silence between slaps and curses was even worse than usual, because they were something new. Long pauses of deliberation, of plotting, just waiting for some final push of a particular button. I covered my head with a pillow, and eventually was able to fall asleep. I woke to the cold glow of moonlight on the wall when I heard the rustling of leaves, way too close to the window to the left of the bed. I gripped the scratchy blanket with small fingers and slowed my breathing to listen. I'd learned of bears and cougars, and the creatures from my book had filled my imagination with larger threats as well. I pulled the dusty wool blanket up to my nose as the snap of branches sounded and a large shadow entered the rectangle of moonlight projected on the wall. Someone or something had stopped and was staring in. My blood chilled as I pictured the homeowner back from a hunting trip and carrying a rifle, finding someone in his bed. Maybe it was a bear smelling the easy prey just beyond the thin pane of glass. Then I swallowed, and my heart beat fast as I watched the shadow. Eventually, it passed the window and rounded the house. I lay there for what felt like an eternity until I heard the thumping heavy footsteps of my father, along with his muttered insults. A sliver of yellow light appeared under the bedroom door, and I heard his pissing in the toilet. Then, a door banged open.
0: Who the fuck's there?
3: The pissing stopped immediately. Footsteps pounded, followed by the click of steel. I covered myself fully and tried to vanish in the mattress. The snapping moved through the cabin, farther away until it was outside the walls and deep into the woods. My mom's voice called out, spitting curses before her voice twisted high into a howling shriek. The loud cracks then started again, similar to thick branches snapping, but I knew as my skin raised from chills it was the sound of breaking bone. Soon enough, everything was silent. I lay there shivering, and I didn't move until the square of moonlight on the wooden wall transitioned into a glowing yellow from the rising sun. I smelled the eggs cooking before I heard the sizzling pan from under the door. I lifted my head from the pillow slowly and then nearly had a heart attack as the rapping on the door startled me. My mind raced through it all again and again, wondering if it was some feverish dream. I sat up in the small bed, stunned until curiosity led my feet over to twist the doorknob open and look into the sunlit cabin. My mother sat at the table. A large, strange grin fixed on her face. My father stood hunched over the stovetop, his broad shoulders to me as he flipped omelets in the skillet. Garlic, onions, and rosemary filled the cabin. It smelled amazing. My father never cooked before. Not ever. My mother extended an arm to the chair for me to sit, and I felt every hair on my neck stand when I realized her black eye was gone. It wasn't makeup like she'd applied liberally after those drunken fights. It was simply gone, not even the slightest bit puffy. I walked over slowly and slid into the chair, peering over the edge of the table at the steaming omelette. My father turned from the stove and faced me, a broad, toothy smile on his smooth face. Too many teeth were in that slanted smile. His leaning jaw clicked into place as if it had just learned where it should hinge. My stomach twisted, but I sat down into the wooden chair, shaky and slow. We ate a meal like normal family, or nearly normal. I ignored it when my father's hand would splay at the wrist by mistake in a fanning, distorted mass before observing mine and then trying again, properly at the base of the knuckles. I ignored it when my mother's neck folded down at a sharp angle with a muffled crunch before fixing itself into an upright position. It was like they were learning, getting used to the new equipment. My gaze kept drifting to the long scratches on the floor and the single fingernail stuck in the splintered woods path, to the red droplets spattered on the beams and the two spent shell casings nestled between the floorboards. I turned my head to view the open front door, a red handprint smeared on the wooden frame. Through the doorway, a trail of fallen leaves had parted to reveal drag marks leading to the lip of the ravine. I knew what was down there, waiting for the animals to pick apart the exposed meat and spread the bones to bleach in the sun. I knew, but I just turned to the two smiling parents whose skin sagged a bit too loose and smiled back.
0: Elaine and Colt are making a documentary on the infamous cave dwelling cannibal clan that lived in the mountains of Utah. They enlist local outdoor enthusiast Jeremy to lead them into the old mining caves to film on location. But in this tale, shared with us by author Joey Harris, it soon becomes clear that something else is in the caves with them. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Mike Delgadio, Kyle Akers, Atticus Jackson, and Mary Murphy. So head down into the depths. Make sure you have a guide. Learn the lore. But even then, beware of the beast called John.
4: was a muggy may afternoon just south of iron mine mountain in northeastern utah it was up in these mountains that colt rivera and i his director elaine jacobin were shooting a documentary on a monster named john k hiram and his family it was a big clan of cannibals nasty stuff we really had to dig for But Colt and I wanted to do this project since college. So once he got a lead and we had the money, we bought a new expensive night vision camera, a local guide and set off for Utah.
5: Goodbye for now, dear viewers. For the next time you see me, we'll be a half mile underground.
4: Colt smiled into the camera and me by proxy. After a second, I said cut and he dropped it and rubbed his face.
5: God damn! Let's do this.
4: The wind whipped my long red hair into my eyes and tangled around the camera. I spent a minute trying to free myself. Every time we shoot on location, the little things build up. First, it was how bumpy the road was. Now, it was the wind. Everything Colt was oblivious to. This was every project. I did most of the legwork with renting the van, the equipment, proofreading the script. I turned off the camera and glanced back to the guide, Jeremy, suiting up by our van. He was a youth counselor in his local ward in his 30s and was by no means certified as any kind of guide, but he regularly explored the area. Enough that he could read a map, anyway. Colt assured me he was the best money could buy. But unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of money. I followed Colt over to his own cluster of bags and equipment, fishing a water bottle from my bag on the way. Here, I handed him the bottle.
5: Thanks, do you know if I forgot mine?
4: You did, that's why I brought another. I always have to bring another.
5: You're a lifesaver, Laney.
4: I punched him in the arm no Laney, on this expedition. I'm mad at you.
6: Hey,
5: hey, who peed in your Cheerios?
4: Colt's dark hair, chiseled jawline, and Hollywood-worthy stubble made it hard for people to get angry with him. Well, that, and he was utterly ripped. He always made sure to be camera-worthy. You're dragging me out to the middle of bumfuck nowhere in pursuit of a local legend. I glared daggers at him while I opened and checked his bags. In truth, there were a million other things that were bugging me, but anyone with a brainstem would know looking for ghosts in a cave was a bad idea. I wasn't superstitious, but I hated to tempt fate, too. Please tell me this sounds familiar.
5: The familiarity to the Blair Witch Project is not lost on me.
4: Colt's confident, camera-ready smirk returned, and he raised three fingers.
5: But there are major differences between us and that movie. One, you and I are a seamless partnership since childhood, not a dysfunctional trio. Two, I hired an expert in this region to guide us through the cave. We won't be reading the maps wrong or losing them with him around. And three, the Blair Witch Project doesn't exist. She was an invisible monster created because they didn't have any budget.
4: Oh, so you're hoping to find the Hiram family down there?
5: We aren't gonna find anyone in that cave. We're gonna go in, shoot some creepy B-roll, interview the expert, and get the scenes I've written. After that, we'll come back up and interview some town folk, and then we're done! It'll be so easy, we won't even know we were gone.
4: You say it like it's so simple.
5: Because it is, Elaine.
4: Colt walked over to put his arm around my shoulders.
5: Just imagine. If this documentary gains some traction, we'll go everywhere with it. Cans, Sundance, Venice. This could be our big break.
4: Oh yeah. The hour and a half-long documentary on cousin fucking cannibals in a cave in Utah. One I'll have to film, edit, and produce from my garage.
5: <laughs> Alleged cousin fucking
4: Colt wagged his finger at me and picked up his bags I put my hands together and a mock beg for forgiveness Oh, I'm sorry I didn't mean to ruin the wholesome sanctity of cannibalism Colt flashed me a dazzling, camera-worthy smile
5: It's okay, Laney. We all make mistakes And it's into this very cave that John K. Hiram dragged his newly kidnapped wife. From there, the tale only grows more grisly. It wasn't long until Hiram had a new baby to take care of. Stealing food was beginning to get harder and harder as people began searching the forest for Emily Woods.
4: Cut! That's good. Where next? Colt and I looked over to Jeremy. Then I stared up at the cave ceiling. The headlamps the three of us wore were the only sources of illumination in there. The ceiling was higher than I expected, at least 10 feet with wooden braces every few yards or so. We had been in there for about an hour, but a couple of seconds before we started shooting, Jeremy had us turn off our lights. I knew caves could be dark, but I never knew they were completely dark. While Colt and Jeremy laughed about the darkness, I felt a cold tingle down my spine. The darkness was unlike anything I'd experienced before. Every time I blinked in the blackness of the cave, I could swear it grew darker and darker each time. The sense of relief I felt when the lights came back on scared me even more. I felt terrified. Why did I feel terrified? Jeremy was looking at the map and the tunnel around us.
5: What's up? Where are we headed? Just
6: down here, to the right. Awesome. You hear that, Laney?
4: I didn't respond. I was stuck in my tracks, filming something off in the darkness. I couldn't tell what it was, even with the night vision. But I could have sworn that there was someone in the cave with us. I was about to walk off to look, but Colt stopped me. Whoa. You okay? There's someone out there.
5: What are you talking about?
4: Quiet! Whoever's in here might be dangerous. I saw... a shadow, I think.
5: If there's someone else in here, they're probably just trying to prank us. Be sure to film some of it so we have some creepy stuff for B-roll. Are you
4: serious? What if they try to attack us? What if they've got a weapon?
5: Elaine, listen. Whoever that is, if they're even there, we'll think twice about coming over here and attacking us. I'm a big, beefy man, and Jeremy's no slouch either. As long as we stick together, we'll be fine.
4: I wanted to groan, pitch a fit, and leave that place. But what we'd shot so far was great footage. And Colt, even though he was boasting, had a point. The two of them cut pretty intimidating silhouettes. Fine. (sighs) We'll keep shooting. And if we capture any pranks or creepy shit, we can use it to tell a story at press junkets. True crime stories and paranormal stories have pretty similar fan bases.
5: That's the spirit.
4: Colt smiled, following Jeremy off into the darkness. I lingered for just a second and looked back. I didn't see the shadow or anyone who was standing there. I shook my head and told myself it'd only be a few more hours.
5: Here, the Hiram clan began to grow. After Emily's death, John kept abducting people, keeping the women, and eating the men. He and his children became proficient hunters, learning the lay of the land better than anyone else. They continued this pattern for months until the state government got involved. The governor, Alfred Cumming himself, sent a check of $1,000 to the men of the local area to gather up arms and hunt John down. Using the money, they did this four separate times in May, June, and July of 1852, but they never found John or his family. One day, however, they spotted a wounded bear. They were about to put it down, but they saw that it had a mouthful of human flesh. Whoever wounded it didn't get away unscathed. They followed the bear's blood trail to this very cave. After two days, they finally gathered everyone and marched into the murky tunnels. They didn't find John, but they found his home. Piles of human bones, dried blood, and makeshift furniture were scattered all over the place. John K. Hiram and his entire family left the place with no clues to where they went. To make sure that the Hiram clan wouldn't return, the men of that militia collapsed as many tunnels as they could, making it so there are only two known ways to enter or exit this cave. Cut! How was that?
4: It was fine. I answered a little too quickly. Something Colt picked up on.
5: What? It's not good?
4: No, it's good. It's just...
5: You still think someone is following us?
4: He sounded annoyed, and I couldn't blame him. I was annoyed with myself, getting scared by stupid ghost stories in a stupid cave where nothing happened. But there was something about this cave. The air was heavy, wet, and cold, weighing us down as we climbed through the hazardous bowels of the iron mine. Aside from that, being in the dark was taking a toll on me. The confining blackness constantly collapsed in on me. My own headlamp did a better job of creating shadows to jump at instead of lighting up the surroundings. I could swear there were whispers all around me, like someone was waiting to pop out. Colt walked over to me and put his hands on my shoulders.
5: Elaine. There's no one else here. We're in the middle of nowhere, and we've been walking for hours. If someone was going to pull something, they would have done it already.
4: I brushed his hands off and looked around us. Listen, I'm not happy about it either, but I just can't shake this feeling.
5: Feeling? Of what?
4: The feeling that someone's stalking us.
5: (laughs) Relax, it's just a rock moving or something.
4: Why are rocks moving in this cave where no one lives?
5: Because of gravity, Elaine. You're freaking out over nothing.
4: I bit the inside of my cheek to keep from screaming at him. I was still mentally planning my defense when Jeremy walked out of the darkness. You guys okay?
5: Yeah, stress from the shoot is just getting to us.
7: Yeah, the stress.
4: I jumped and whipped around looking for whoever just whispered in my ear. God damn it, Colt! Someone's fucking whispering in my ear! Elaine, just... It's okay.
6: Caves are weird. You can hear and feel stuff that you aren't used to. Being this deep underground messes with your ears.
4: I wanted to argue. I was done with this place. Colt put his hands on my shoulders again.
5: Elaine, get a grip. Listen to Jeremy. He knows what he's talking about.
4: I looked over to Jeremy, and he tried his best to give me a comforting look. Okay. Okay. Let's just hurry up and get this over with. Colt smiled and turned to Jeremy.
6: So, where to next, Jer? Oh, uh, just keep going straight ahead. Awesome.
4: Colt picked up his bag, and we followed Jeremy again.
6: Hey Colt, how did Hiram get all... nutty? I don't think you've said anything about it in the cave so far.
5: That's because that part of the script is for upstairs. We're gonna shoot that with a historian in Vernal.
6: Do you mind telling us while we're here? Uh, Yeah, no problem.
5: It all started back in 1852 when John Hiram was only a miner. The man they worked under, William Bradshaw, was a slave driver. Constantly working men to their premature deaths, One day, they got a crate of dynamite for the first time. No one knew how to use it and absolutely refused to. Bradshaw, full of frustration and machismo, grabbed the crate and ordered Hiram to follow him into the mine. Hiram knew that he'd likely follow Bradshaw to his own death, but he needed the money and thought he might get some extra pay. The two men entered the cave and no one followed after them. There were four explosions that day, A cave-in caused by Bradshaw misplacing a stick of dynamite trapped Hiram and permanently injured Bradshaw's leg. For 13 days, the men tried to dig Hiram out, and in that time, Bradshaw had to step down from his position due to his injury. Finally, the miners broke through the wall of stone they thought Hiram was behind, but all they found was a dried patch of blood and writing on the wall that said, Here lies the dead man Hiram. Born is the beast called John. A week after that, Bradshaw disappeared along with his wife. His daughter was found murdered in the home. Whoa.
4: I shivered. The story was over a hundred and fifty years old. The way Colt told it still got to me. But then, I swear I felt someone tug on my hair. I quickly glanced over, and it was gone. I convinced myself it was just the cave and my nerves. But the doubt was still there.
6: Is that all true?
5: Well, records say that a man named John K. Hiram worked under William Bradshaw for the Deseret Mining Company, and there was an explosion that permanently injured Bradshaw. But after that, everything's hearsay and legend. No one's been able to find records on Hiram's death, nor for half of the disappearances people say happened here. By all accounts, it's fake, and the people who got lost were simply attacked by wild animals. With Bradshaw, his daughter was actually murdered. But eyewitnesses say they saw Bradshaw and his wife leaving town afterward. He probably went south and died from old age.
6: So why are you making a film about it? Seems rather old to be popular.
5: Well, that's the thing. No one's talked about it. But you constantly hear stories about old witches in New England, or the chupacabra in Mexico, or Bigfoot, the Mothman, the Jersey Devil. I want to make John Hiram and his clan, infamous
6: for Utah. Well, I don't totally understand, but I can appreciate your passion with this project. Thanks. Everything I do is about passion.
4: With that, we started moving again. Jeremy taking the lead, Colt following close behind, and me in the back, trying not to lose it. We stopped to rest after wandering through the cave for at least four hours. My mental state only deteriorated, and at that point I knew I'd burst into tears at the sight of the sun. I had stepped away from the group for a moment alone, the constant reassurances from Colt only making it harder to stand the cave. Whenever it got to be too much, he'd tell me we were almost done, that it would only be a few more minutes. It had been hours, and I fucking hated that place. I was going over the footage on the camera. I had an earbud in one ear, listening to the audio. It was about as clear as it could get in the cave. Might have to ADR some lines, but for the most part, it was fine. Colt had gone off scouting for a suitably creepy place to film, and Jeremy did the same to find the quickest exit. He could tell I was moments away from becoming feral. I was listening to a scene just after the second stop when I heard a whisper.
7: Get out of my cave.
4: Ice ran through my veins. The mic on my camera was good, but not amazing. For a whisper to come across as clear as that, someone would have to be standing right beside me. I quickly shut the screen on the camera and ripped the earbud from my ear. My legs and hands were shaking. Damn it, damn it, damn it. I put one hand to my mouth and bit into my palm.
7: Holy hell!
4: I picked up the camera and started filming on reflex. I moved as quickly as I could. The floor of the cave only grew slicker the deeper we went. One bad step, and I could shatter my ankle. Colt? Colt! Over here! Colt, where are... I rounded a corner, and bile rose up in my throat at the sight before me. A fresh corpse of a man in his early twenties sat on the floor of the cave. His belly ripped open, and his guts on the floor next to him. His chin was in his chest... His face hidden in the shadows. His hands were covered in blood. I could feel my knees begin to give way. My entire frame was shaking uncontrollably. What the fuck is this? Jeremy arrived seconds later.
6: (gasps) Where did he come from?
4: Colt slowly walked toward the body and lifted a hand. What are you doing? Don't touch it!
5: I've got to figure out who he is. Keep rolling.
4: I had no intention of stopping. The sick, morbid filmmaker in me couldn't stop. Whoever this was, he was going to make us millions.
6: Seriously, what what the fuck is this?
4: I turned the camera to Jeremy. How do we get out of here? I... I don't know. I froze, and I somehow felt Colt do the same. What do you mean? You don't know. Jeremy covered his face with his hands.
6: It's... it's been changing. I... I can't tell where anything is. So you've just been blindly taking us through this fucking cave? Why didn't you say something sooner? I I was scared. I thought we'd
4: get out eventually, but now... We're all gonna die. Calm down, both of you. We all went quiet. <sighs> We've got to get a hold of ourselves. There has to be a way out.
6: I, 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 don't, I don't, I don't know how to get out of here. The cave, the cave is changing. Caves don't change
5: like that. You're just lost. Look, we'll pick a direction and walk. As long as we stick together, we should be okay.
4: Jeremy just shook and nodded. It's settled then. Let's go left.
7: You are in my cave.
4: All three of our headlamps and the light on the camera went out without warning. No flicker. No dim. Just out. A cold feeling cut through me like a knife. It was the same whisper from before. What?
6: HAPPENING
4: Jeremy took off His footsteps receding in the darkness
5: God damn it Elaine, please tell me you're still here
4: I... I'm here
5: Okay, just... just stay put I'll fish another light out of my pack
4: I struggled to get my bearings It was so dark I didn't know if my eyes were closed or not It was too much to bear I collapsed down to my knees, terrified that I'd just fall into nothing. The camera was still recording. I could see the red light. I just tried to focus on that.
6: Look at me.
4: The lights came back on, and standing above me was a large man, covered in blood like he just stepped out of a grisly shower. He was gigantic. His legs were as wide around as tree trunks, his body the size of a wooden barrel, his arms thick clubs ending in brick-like fists. He had a shaven head and a large beard, but his eyes, they were hateful and full of rage. But he had a wide, wild grin on his face.
7: Behold the beast called John.
4: His voice was gravelly, like a growl from an angry wolf. The lights went out again. A scream started to well up inside my throat, but I clapped a hand over my mouth to keep from making a sound. I felt tears roll down my cheeks and over my hand. The lights returned, and John was no longer there. Just two gigantic, bloody footprints. Colt grabbed me by my backpack and pulled me to my feet.
5: We need to go.
4: I could only take in the sound of our feet scraping on the rocks. Colt guided me through the cave. I started a trip, the urge to throw up rising. We kept moving, my eyes and my headlamp focused on the ground so I could at least get an idea of where I was stepping. The voice rumbled in my head.
7: Don't leave. I need you.
4: We both fell, our feet tripping in the darkness. I could hear my camera crack against the floor, and I scrambled to grab it, but pulled away with nothing.
7: My family needs you.
4: The lights came back on, and before us stood a large group of people. I couldn't tell you how many. They were all different shapes and sizes. Some were gigantic beasts of men, others hunched over like feral rats. Most of them had misshapen limbs, arms too short, legs too skinny, heads too large. A small girl, one arm was half the size of the other, only reaching the bottom of her ribs, stepped in front of me, She had a large hump on her back, jutting her head forward, and she walked with a grotesque limp, twisting her entire body to drag her lame foot along. She stared at me with a lopsided face and opened her lips to show a mouth full of disfigured teeth, each one pointing out at a different angle. Are you snack? Her voice held a pronounced lisp, her S getting caught in her misshapen teeth, sending spittle all over my face. I lifted my left arm to wipe it away, and she caught me in a vice-like grip with her good hand, a grasp much too strong for a little girl. She opened her mouth and bit into my arm, cutting through my jacket with her teeth and into my flesh. Lights off. Lights on. Bodies hung from hooks all around us, like stalactites from the ceiling. They surrounded us in a circle. Some still had skin, others were missing chunks of it, and others had none at all. The hooks were expertly placed through the neck, under the collarbone. In the center, there was John, still drenched in blood that wasn't his. My arm burned, and my stomach bubbled, threatening to release its contents.
7: You're mine.
4: (sighs) Another trick of the lights, and everything was gone. We were all kneeling on the floor of a dead end, panting and sweating. I looked down to my left arm and saw the jagged bite. My throat went numb, and I finally threw up on the floor. Come on, we need to go. Colt pulled me to my feet and kept an arm around me to keep me standing. Just keep moving. You'll be okay. Just keep moving. We kept moving. One step after another. But I couldn't escape the feeling. We were just going in circles. One step after another. Colt! Elaine! Jeremy suddenly emerged from the shadows. He held his bloody jacket to his left shoulder. He was pale and limping. Jeremy! What happened? I just... I, I ran and some... Some giant
6: uh, attacked me. He... he bit me. We've just got to keep moving. Oh. Okay.
4: Jeremy turned to lead us but walked right into John, who was smiling. Blood leaked from the corners in his mouth. No! Colt let me go, and I fell against the wall. He reared back a fist and threw a wild haymaker at John. Colt struck him in the face, twisting John's head. But with one wave of his arm, John sent Colt flying, making his head bounce off the floor. John grabbed Jeremy, one gigantic hand on either shoulder, and lifted him from the ground. Colt struggled to his feet, but I was stuck on the wall, watching John. His jaw dropped, extending far beyond what should be possible. His mouth just kept getting bigger until he was able to swallow Jeremy whole. He bent forward and moved Jeremy into his gaping maw. Jeremy didn't make a sound as John slowly pushed him down his throat. We need to go. Colt grabbed me by the waist and tried his best to move me. I stumbled away on uncoordinated feet, looking over my shoulder to see John still swallowing Jeremy. We got away from John, somehow. For what felt like hours, we walked around the cave in total silence. At some point, Colt wrapped his jacket around my bitten arm to staunch the blood flow. We just kept walking, too tired to run or scream. After a while, our pace slowed to a crawl, and we were holding each other up. Where are we going?
5: I... I, I don't know.
4: Colt, are we going to die here? He didn't answer, but the words seemed to stop him. We stumbled to a wall and slid down to the floor.
5: I don't understand. How...
7: how did he
4: do all of that? What the fuck happened?
7: You want to know what happened?
4: John appeared in front of us, and we didn't move. I was too lightheaded. It was
5: Bradshaw. He was the one who trapped you. Why are you doing this?
7: Because I'm hungry.
4: No, I... (sighs) Colt dropped his head and started shaking. John bent over us.
7: You make a deal with the devil to leave, and evil becomes you. Of all the people I've eaten, Bradshaw tasted the best.
4: I felt tears trickling out of my eyes, and he smiled. Please, please just let us go.
7: Let you go? But I haven't eaten this well in years.
4: His mouth began to elongate again, and panic rose up in my chest. I pushed back into the cave wall, trying to disappear through it. Wait! John paused.
5: You made a deal to leave a trap, so let us make
4: one. John tipped his head to the side, but didn't say anything.
5: Let us leave, and we'll tell everyone about your cave. We're shooting a movie. If everyone knows it took place here, they'll come in droves. You'll eat like a king. Why would they come to their deaths? Because it happens every time. Whenever there's a new horror movie, everyone goes to the place it's based on. I promise you, they'll be here.
4: John considered his words, furrowing his brow and staring hard at the floor. I didn't think it'd work. There was no way John knew what a fucking movie was. Eventually, His jaw closed.
7: (laughs) Very well. Leave. Let everyone know. And if you don't want to be eaten, don't come back.
4: Colt pulled me up. I was too terrified to move. He dragged me through the cave until we got outside. The two of us collapsed on the ground under the moonlight. My arm hurt, my throat hurt, my eyes burned. I just closed them, hoping it all be over. But it wouldn't be. With our deal with John, it'd never be over. I clenched my hands into fists and realized something. I brought my right hand up to my face, and saw the SD card from the camera.
7: Let them know. Give me food.
0: parties. What better time to have fun, celebrate, and enjoy yourself? What could possibly be scary about a birthday party, even when you decide to sit around telling scary stories? But in this tale, shared with us by author Colin Paradine, we soon learn that fiction can become reality. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Matthew Bradford, Ellie Hirschman, Kyle Akers, Dan Zapula, Nicole Doolin, and Jeff Clement. So pay attention to who your guests are, especially when things start to get spooky, and be careful that you haven't accidentally invited the Screwdriver Man.
7: To tell this tale, I have to take you back to the summer of 1983. Looking back now, it seems like a lifetime ago. I suppose, in a certain perspective, it was. I was 12 years old and doing the average 12 year old things, but one July night, when I attended a friend's birthday party, that would all change. It was my friend Mark Jensen's 12th birthday, and he was having a sleepover. It was the typical kind of party that most kids that age had, where a bunch of friends are invited over for a night of junk food, video rentals, and mischief. Although, there was rarely ever much sleeping going on. Mark lived on a large piece of property outside of town on a concession road where the nearest neighbor was a mile and a quarter away. About half an acre behind their house, they kept a large camper trailer at the edge of a large swath of forest. This particular weekend, that beat-up old Airstream would be the birthday headquarters. Looking back, I can't really say I blame Mark's folks for putting us there. A bunch of hormonal boys hopped up on sodas and junk food wouldn't be my idea of fun either. So the campers seemed the best place for us. Besides, we were in the middle of nowhere. We couldn't get into that much trouble out there. There were five of us in attendance was always five of us. We were a tight-knit group of friends who basically grew up together. Mark, the birthday boy, was a goofy country kid with buck teeth and a lazy eye. Andy was the class clown, both in school and out. Martin was the moody, city-to-small-town transplant who was a self-professed intellectual. Jamie, the all-American jock who had every opportunity to be king of our middle school, but secretly love the nerd life and myself the quiet one who didn't say much but when i did it was always something stupid yep i was the kid that always toted around a polaroid camera much to the chagrin of most of my teachers at school i enjoyed taking photos of things that most people didn't take photos of the railing of a stairway a sink faucet a manhole cover Those were the things that I found beautiful and interesting. Everyone else could have the flowers and vistas in the country. I wanted the odd things. Probably because that's how I felt myself. Odd. And so were my friends. Aside from Jamie, we were the invisible kids at school. Not cool enough to hang with the popular kids, and not geeky enough to fall into the nerd category. We were in click purgatory, essentially non-existent. Jamie only got the cred he got because of sports, but that stuff didn't matter to him. Friendship meant more than some stupid popularity contest. It truly didn't matter to any of us. At the time, it seemed that nothing would separate us. We were like a gang of kids in those 80s coming-of-age movies that went on incredible adventures, only in our own imaginations. We would do anything for each other. We were brothers. For dinner, we ate our weight in pizza, chugged sodas ad nauseum, played loud music, bounced around the trailer and basically goofed off for most of the night. Without parental supervision, there were a lot of dirty jokes, teasing each other about girls we did or didn't like, and endless video games played on Mark's Atari 2600. I was unbeatable in Super Mario Brothers, and I'll defend that title to this day. I also acted as a party photographer, even though I found photographing people uninteresting. But these guys were my best friends, and I felt it was my duty to commemorate the occasion. So I captured some photos of the night's shenanigans, and we laughed at how stupid we looked. As it got dark, a wind picked up coming from the woods beside us to the north and every once in a while we could feel the trailer rock back and forth as branches from the trees danced across the roof. What is that? I was startled by the
6: noise,
7: but Mark didn't seem concerned.
6: It's the wind. Nah, that's no wind.
7: Martin was stone-faced serious,
6: and he smirked.
3: Oh yeah? What is it? It's an escaped mental patient trying to get in. Yeah. And I bet he just escaped and is looking for his next victims.
7: Then Jamie caught on to the
6: game.
3: And, and, he's got a hook for a
6: hand. The very same hook he used to kill a bunch of... of nuns
3: back in the 60s.
7: The trailer went quiet. We all stared at Andy. Oh,
6: Andy. What? Nuns? Could happen. (laughs) (laughs)
7: Everyone erupted into laughter, including Andy. He was always a good sport about those things. Usually he would say something stupid and end up the butt of most jokes, but he took it all in stride. It never seemed to bother him, at least not that I could tell. This change in the weather ultimately changed the mood of the party, and pretty soon we were all huddled around a flashlight telling our best ghost stories. Looking back, our best were pretty lame. The old chestnuts of our local haunted house, more escaped mental patient stories, and one about a haunted toy store somewhere in the Midwest were all told in pseudo-spooky voices. The flashlight tucked dramatically under our faces for added ghoulish effect. Yeah, those stories seem pretty lame now, 36 years later. But to a bunch of 12-year-olds was actually quite terrifying. None of us would have admitted it at the time, but by around the fourth story, we were all pretty freaked out. Between the wind outside, the dark inside, and the unpredictable tapping from the tree branches on the roof, the atmosphere had been nicely established. Yeah, we were scared, but we also loved it. That story was told by Andy. He spoke of the real-life story of two kids murdered a few years back out on old Marshall Road, the deserted back road where everyone would go and make out, by a drifter. As he described their murders, we could all feel a collective chill run down our spines. Andy may have been the obligatory funny kid, but he could switch gears and scare the crap out of you at the drop of a dime. Martin was next, and while his story was pretty much the same, It was what occurred during it that changed everything. Marty, as most of us called him, propped himself against the wall of the trailer. Above him was a window. He looked out at us from behind the flashlight beam, stone-faced as he usually was when he wanted us to take him seriously, and started his
6: story. There's a gravestone in the basement of my house.
7: As if on cue, A slender, pale hand rose into view in the window above Martin's head and knocked rapidly on the glass. (coughs) We all jumped out of our skins, most of us yelping involuntarily, and the rest almost wetting our pants. We scrambled together in a huddle, gripping onto each other for safety.
1: Mark, open the door.
7: (sighs) A collective sigh of relief expelled into the air. It was mark's mom we quickly stepped away from each other pretending everything was cool mark moved to the door and opened it his mom stepped inside she was the mom that all the boys liked she was gorgeous and cool the total package she drove all the boys wild and it drove mark crazy he hated it every day at school some asshole would comment on how hot she was And believe me when I say they didn't hold back in describing their fantasies about her. It must have sucked being the kid of a hot mom. I can't say that her looks and charms didn't affect me either. Whenever I was around her, all kinds of feelings, most that I couldn't explain, started welling up inside of me. It was such a strange feeling. Up until this point, I'd always thought of girls as gross, but those past few months... Things were changing, and I'm pretty sure my first crush was Mark's mom.
6: Why is it so quiet in here?
7: Mark stepped to the door and cleared his throat. His mom turned and looked at him with a condescending glance.
3: Mom, outside. (laughs) Mom, outside, please.
7: Mrs. Jensen turned to us, a smile starting to disappear from her beautiful face. This made her look somehow... older.
1: Behave yourselves, boys.
6: Don't stay up too late. Oh, and don't use the toilet in
1: here. The tank is full.
7: With that, she stepped outside. Mark followed and closed the door behind them. It didn't make any difference. We could still hear them clear as day as they continued their conversation outside. Andy kept miming how big he thought her boobs were with his hands in front of his chest making crude faces complete with wagging tongue action. (laughs) Jamie snickered while Martin gave Andy a shot in the arm for being disrespectful. I was glad he did it, but I would have hit him harder.
3: You're embarrassing me. Alright, (laughs) alright. I was just checking
4: to make sure you were all still alive.
7: I suppose she was right. I mean, from her perspective, the trailer was dark and quiet. Who's to say that we hadn't taken off? Or worse, been actually hacked to death by some actual maniac. Even back then, I understood her concern. If only because I would have done anything for her. I peeked out the window next to me and watched him begging his mom to stop disconcerting him.
3: We're fine. Can I go back to my friends now? Watch the tone, buddy.
7: Somehow, she was even hotter when she was mad. Sorry. We heard a mumbled apology, the kind you give when you know you've just acted like a dick, but you're either too proud or too stupid to admit it, the kind that only a parent can make you give. She mussed up his mop of curly hair and smiled as she turned and started walking back to the house. I noticed she was carrying some kind of magazine with her, probably some rock music quarterly. Mark's parents weren't like most parents, they were cool. His dad was a musician in a touring band, and his wife managed him. Their house was basically music gear and instruments. There was even a mini recording studio in the basement. It was a pretty sweet setup. His mom walked into the shadows of the sprawling yard, and a moment later Mark schlepped back in through the door. My attention turned away from the window.
3: Parents suck. Nah, just your mom, dude. Hey, get off my mom. I just got off yours. (laughs) Yeah!
7: (laughs) Andy threw a handful of popcorn at Mark, and that started a mini food fight. I got up to use the bathroom, and Mark stopped me while the others pelted each other with snacks.
3: No can do, dude. Remember? Tank's full.
6: It's cool.
7: I nodded and headed outside to find a tree. As I stood at the edge of the forest relieving myself, listening to the crickets and frogs, I could see the house over my shoulder. There was a huge picture window that overlooked the backyard, and at night you could see into the huge living room. There I could see Mark's parents hanging out on the couch. They kissed each other and shared a drink from a wine glass, and the next thing I knew, Mark's mom was undressing. Needless to say, this got my attention. I zipped up the fly of my Levi's 501s and turned toward the house. I have to say that during this time, I'm not sure how long I was watching this for. I mean, it's been over 30 years and my memory isn't what it used to be. I can only see bright flashes as the gaps in time invade my memories. I do, however... Remember her reaching to remove her bra when a voice startled the living daylights out of me, distracting me from the action.
6: What are you doing, dude?
7: I whirled around, looking as guilty as the cat that ate the canary. Nothing. Just uh, uh just taking a leak. It seems that Andy didn't notice my obvious awkwardness as he shrugged and headed off to find his own tree. As he moved to the forest fringe, a few feet away. I looked back at the house to see the living room now empty. They were gone. I was relieved that I wasn't caught spying on Mark's folks, but I was also pissed that I didn't get to see what I had fantasized about many, many times. I went back inside the camper with Andy close behind me. Everyone had settled and Marty
6: continued his story. When my parents bought our house, the real estate agent told them about a gravestone in the basement that had been there for about as long as the house had existed. The stone has a name on it, too. Harold Scribbs. His birth and death year are carved into it as well. So it's
3: like an actual grave? Uh-huh. The real deal. There's an actual dead body buried in your basement?
7: Martin nodded. There was a long pause as we all processed the claim.
6: <laughs> Bullshit. Hand to God! Next time you guys come over, I'll show you. Wait, seriously? No bullshit? No bullshit. Dude, that's fucked up. What's even more fucked up is the night I was visited by Harold Scribbs. About a year ago, I was in bed trying to sleep, but I couldn't. I tossed and turned, and eventually I opened my eyes and sat up. That's when I heard it. Heard what? The sound, outside my door. It sounded like footsteps coming down the hallway. At first I thought maybe my dad was up, so I called out to him, but I didn't get an answer. I threw the covers off and climbed out of bed, heading for the door, when the footsteps stopped. I froze. For some reason, this really scared the shit out of me. I stood there for, I don't know, what, felt like hours, until a different noise started. We all listened intently as the story took hold of our imaginations. I couldn't tell exactly what it was at first. My fear was getting in the way of my senses, but... Soon, I recognized it. It was the sound of fingernails being slowly dragged down my bedroom door. Man, he was really laying it on thick. I called out again for my dad and still there was no answer. I had to check this out on my own, so... I stepped slowly toward the door as the climb continued in this slow, almost rhythmic way. Each step I took, I half expected who or whatever was on the other side to burst through the door and slaughter me where I stood, but the scratching continued. As I took my next step, though, there was a pause at the door as the sound stopped. My heart was racing insanely inside my chest, and it was the only thing I can remember hearing. That's when out of nowhere,
7: we all jumped at the sudden barrage of banging, but soon came to realize that it had to be Mark's mom again. Mark stood up with an annoyed look on his face.
3: Dude, your mom sounds pissed.
7: Mark threw the door open only to find no one there. I peered out the window again, sliding the polyester curtains aside, but I couldn't see anything. Just the house lights in the distance, the living room's still empty.
6: Mark?
3: There's no one here.
6: There was definitely someone there.
3: I'm telling you, there's no one here.
6: There was a quiet
7: among us as Mark turned and closed the door. Just as he was about to speak, the same heavy banging noise shattered the silence. This time it came from the rear of the trailer. We all shot up out of our seats, instinctively moving closer to each other as the banging noise started to move from the rear of the camper, up one side, and around to the front, closer to where we were. Not one of us spoke a word. No one even tried looking out the window to see who or what was responsible for the cannonade of clamor. Then, just as suddenly as it started, the thumping stopped. We waited for something else to happen for what seemed like forever. But nothing came. All was quiet.
3: What the fuck was that?
6: An animal? You're an idiot. Fuck you, Marty. No, fuck you.
5: How about both of you shut the fuck up?
7: Martin and I shot each other dirty glares as we parked our barbs. That's when we heard something outside the door again. Something was rustling on the other side. And no, it definitely wasn't an animal. That's when the trailer started to rock, forcefully. We all held honest to not fall over from the swaying of the camper. It had to have been several people out there to rock a double white side to side. Maybe it was an animal, perhaps a bear. Soon it stopped. We remained silent as we heard the faint footfalls of someone running off into the woods behind us.
8: Let's get
5: that motherfucker!
7: That's when Jamie sprang into action. He made for the door and bolted out into the yard. Come on, get back Back in here! here. Come on! We don't know what's out there! We all followed him, urging him to get back inside. But he zeroed in on the sounds coming from the woods and went in after them. Shit. The next thing I knew, everyone had followed suit. They all went in either to drag Jamie back or to teach whoever was messing with us a lesson. I, however, hesitated. I looked around the yard, not really sure what to do. My eyes moved to the house. Maybe Mark's parents heard the noise. I turned on my heel and headed in that direction. Inside, the house was quiet. I found myself wondering if maybe Mr. and Mrs. Jensen had gone to bed, or were they still, you know, doing it. It didn't matter. We were in trouble and we needed help. Another bright flash of fogginess happens here, so excuse my uh, haziness. I don't recall going up to their room or searching the rest of the house. I just remember standing in their bedroom in the dark. I flicked on the overhead light and was immediately met with a sight that has haunted me for the past 36 years. There on the bed lay the naked, bloody, disemboweled body of Mr. Jensen. He was sprawled out, face up, with his entrails spread across his body as if on display. Beside him was the nude body of his wife. She was soaked in blood from what looked to be hundreds, if not thousands, of stab wounds. Her throat had been slit so brutally that it's possible she could have been decapitated. My feet felt like cinder blocks, and I didn't know what to do. Panic and disgust raced through my head while dread and fright shot through my heart. I knew I had to get back outside to tell the others, but I couldn't get myself to move. As my eyes darted around the grisly scene, I somehow managed to focus on a telephone on the bedside table. Finally, I could feel my faculties coming back to me. I moved to the phone and picked it up, ready to dial 911. When I raised the receiver to my ear, I was met with silence. I hung it up in the cradle and tried again. Still nothing. Nothing. I traced the phone line under the bed where I soon found it to be cut at one end. The next thing I remember was standing at the edge of the forest, listening for the guys. I don't remember leaving the house, but obviously I did. As I stood peering into the dark thicket, I could hear Jamie yelling something in the distance. I ran toward his voice. As I stumbled through the brush, my camera bounced against my chest, hanging from the shoulder strap around my neck. I kept replaying the vision of Mark's parents in their literal deathbed. I felt horrible for spying on them earlier. What kind of pervert does that? What was wrong with me? There are more gaps in time here that I'm unsure about, but I finally found Jamie leaning against a tree several yards away from the trailer. Jamie! He didn't answer. I approached him and planted a hand on his shoulder. Jamie, we have to find the others. He didn't move. I circled around to face him. Jamie? He couldn't have answered if he wanted to. The large screwdriver plunged into his head and embedded into the tree behind him saw to that. His eyes had rolled back in their sockets and blood streamed down his face. My friend Jamie, the only one of us with a promising future, was dead. The others were next if I didn't find them first. As much as it pained me to leave him there that way, I knew I had to help the rest of my friends. Forgive me. There was so much going on that night. It was so long ago. These, These lapses in my memory are... Oh yes, I was only a few feet away from Jamie's corpse when I found Andy. I wish I could say that he had a happy ending in this story, but that wasn't meant to be. The several puncture marks in his torso and head led me to believe that he was killed with the same screwdriver as Jamie. I was starting to feel sick to my stomach. My head was swimming with so many emotions. And the fact that there were still two other friends that I prayed were still alive, but questioned the likelihood. My question was answered quicker than I expected, as I turned away from Andy to face the remains of both Martin and Mark. Both had been stabbed to the point of near unrecognizability. The only way I knew it was them was Martin's Joy Division button on his jacket and Mark's buck teeth. I fell to my knees as complete despair took over. If I was going to be next, I welcomed it. How could I possibly go on after all this senseless death? Things went black after that. I woke to the sounds of birds chirping and walkie-talkie radio static as a couple of police officers helped me to my feet. Around us, a team of cops, forensic examiners, and paramedics tended to the bodies of my friends. I later learned that a neighbor stopped by for a music lesson with Mr. Jensen, and when no one answered the door, they called the police to check things out. I guess that's how they found me and the other bodies out there in the woods. I'd fallen asleep waiting for the killer, the screwdriver man, as I started calling him to finish what he had started, but he never came back. Paramedics checked me out to make sure I hadn't sustained any injuries, and I was brought back to the police station in town. They questioned me and took my statement, and everything seemed cut and dry until I asked if they had caught the guy that did it. What about the screwdriver man? The what now? The screwdriver man. The guy that killed my friends. Yeah, kid. We got the guy that did it. Oh, thank God. Does that mean I get to go home soon? The cop didn't answer me. His phone rang, and he answered instead. As he took the call, I realized I didn't have my camera with me. I started to feel a little panicky. I looked around the department to see if it had been brought back to the station. The place was bustling, most likely due to the chaos the screwdriver man caused. But while I glanced around the room, I saw a couple of officers walk by with some items in what looked like evidence bags. One contained several Polaroid photos. They were too far away so I didn't see what they were photos of, but the second bag was my camera. I was then ushered into a room with a table and a large mirror. Two cops I saw moments ago with my camera came in with both the camera and the photos. Son we need to talk to you about these with that he threw down a bunch of polaroids of each of the victims and in each photo aside from the victims was me in every photo i was posing with the gruesome remains of the person i was now being accused of killing and in every photo i was smiling As I mentioned earlier, it's been 36 years since these events, and due to overwhelming evidence, I have spent those 36 years at a state mental facility, just waiting, waiting to get out because I know I'm not crazy. I know I'm not the one that butchered my friends like everyone says I did. And I know that the screwdriver man is still out there, waiting... Just like me.
0: In our final tale, we meet a journalist for a magazine that specializes in the mysterious and paranormal. Years of being confronted with hoaxes have left him a skeptic, but when his editor sends him on assignment to investigate unexplained lights in a small town, he heads off to do his professional duty. But in this tale, shared with us by author H.G.C. Allard, our journalist begins to suspect that these lights might be something more dangerous performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Penny Scott Andrews, James Cleveland, and David Alt. So open your mind, even if you don't want to believe. Don't assume the events are innocuous. They might be filled with malice.
9: The article on the fourth page was tiny. I could have easily skimmed past it if Marianne hadn't circled it with red marker. It was in a local rag, an amateurish paper from some small town up north, the Kennick Comet. Mysterious lights in the sky. Campers staying in Graston reported seeing strange lights in the sky on Saturday night. One tourist, who wishes to remain anonymous, describes the lights as white orbs just roaming about outside the village. Kenick's police community support officers were quick to reassure callers that the lights were most likely ordinary sky lanterns. Graston based writer Frank Hume has other ideas. He says that the lights have been around for years and even suggests that these UFOs have abducted an unlucky walker or two in the past. It was almost nothing. Still, Marianne leaned over my desk, grinning. I finished reading and looked up at her. So what?
4: So... UFOs? Orbs? Ghost lights? It doesn't matter how you spin it, there's a story there, Jack.
9: How can I wring a decent article from this? Have we reached out to this Frank Hume guy?
4: No. i prefer for you to head up there and figure something out. Get into that gonzo headspace again. We've still got some of that Fort Fund money. We could get you on a train tomorrow night, get you shacked up in a nice little b and You might be there at Ground Zero for another Berwin Mountain incident. A new Rendlesham.
9: Marianne, our editor-in-chief, was a decent gal, if a little naive. But she kept the wheels of New Lands turning in an age where print media was going the way of the dinosaurs. Marianne and I had joined the magazine on the same day fresh out of Leicester University, ready to delve into the mysteries of the paranormal together. However, in the 20 years that followed, I had encountered nothing but hoaxes and fantasies. Where Marianne's wonder had weathered the storm, mine had withered. The final straw came during my investigation of the newly christened Loch Fine Monster in 2008. I had just uncovered a model plesiosaur stashed beneath a tarp in the bushes beside the loch, I stood there in the freezing rain, staring into the monster's painted eyes, and I came to terms with it. None of this stuff was real. So, of course, I didn't think that Marianne's proposal would have me bear witness to first contact. My articles now focused more on the locations, history, and the wacky characters I met. It was an approach that had proved popular, and Marianne was always keen to get me out in the field. Oh, all right. Might as well give it a shot. But you've got a guarantee I'll see a flying saucer this time.
6: I swear it. Scout's honour.
9: Marianne smiled, holding up a three-fingered salute. The following evening, I found myself in a cosy bed and breakfast on the outskirts of Kenick, courtesy of the magazine, as promised. During a brief conversation with my host, I mentioned that I was a writer. She was very excited by the prospect of housing a writer and asked what I was working on. I lied and said I was writing a novel, then offhandedly mentioned the strange lights over Graston, explaining that I had read about them in the Comet. She hadn't heard about them. Still, I wasn't without a plan. I'd head over to Graston the next morning and check out a local pub, the Bull, There, I was sure I could find someone who knew something. I read the pub's menu on the phone as I ate a cheap sandwich. Sometimes, the ability to drop everything and disappear to the other end of the country made me the envy of my small circle of friends, a group of other 40-somethings with families. But at times like this, I felt like I had wasted my entire career writing about nonsense. Life moved fast. I put my phone on charge and crawled into the single bed. Graston was quite a lovely place, a little village hugging the banks of the River Kent, framed by the pagan hills of the Lake District. All around its outskirts, neat squares of grazing land were bounded by ancient walls of tumbling mossy stone. I spent most of the morning exploring the countryside beyond, The narrow lanes dug their way through tunnels of trees, rose up into the lower hills, and opened onto vast panoramas of the glacier-carved valleys. Occasionally, I passed an erratic, the odd-looking boulders that had been left behind by extinct glaciers that looked like morsels of food picked from the teeth of giants. Eventually, I wore myself out and returned to the village, daydreaming about a hot steak and ale pie. The bowl was odd, anachronistic, a trendy, modern gastropub that stood out like a sore thumb. I slipped in quietly and ate my meal alone, away from the other, younger patrons. Just as I was beginning to feel extremely self-conscious, the trio of fellow old-timers in muddy boots came stomping in, continuing their chat about their morning walk. The three men got pints of ale and took a table by the window, which overlooked the river. I had just washed my pie down with a fairly strong pint, and I felt confident enough to wander over. Hi there. Sorry to interrupt. They stopped talking and looked up, a little bewildered. I'm staying in the area for a few days, and I was wondering if you had any walks you'd recommend. I just thought, you know. I gestured to their boots. There was silence for a moment. One of the men, a wiry, hard-eyed guy in his fifties, grabbed a nearby chair and dragged it loudly to the table. He nodded to the chair. A few pints later, I felt like I would known Andy, David, and Neil for years. They told me plenty about their usual walks, the local wildlife, the overpriced beers hawked by the bull, and how that morning Neil had fallen theatrically on his ass slipping down the muddy riverbank when he had gone for a piss. As the laughter died down, I brought up the strange lights using my trademark feigned nonchalance. Immediately, David and Neil burst into laughter again. David exclaimed that Andy had seen the lights and Neil wailed with mock terror. Andy chuckled along with him, but his eyes took on a strange cast.
8: Leave it, you two. I'd probably take the piss too if the tables were turned. But you didn't see what I saw. What did he
9: see? Andy looked my way and took a swig of ale. I saw those lights.
8: This was a night two years ago in September. I was walking Bonnie, our setter, a path behind the post office. Oh, that's the track I told you about. The one that crests a hill back there. Amazing views
9: he traced the hill's form in the air with his hand, clinging to this more mundane topic of conversation for a moment before continuing his story.
8: Anyway, Bonnie had run up ahead. There wasn't much in the way of moonlight, but I could see her lying down on her belly further along the top of the hill. She was just crying and crying. She wasn't looking my way, but off the far hillside down in the little valley there.
9: David and Neil were silent now, attentive their teasing totally forgotten
8: bonnie had been staring at some point out there in the dark crying for about a minute when the first light came into the valley from the west around the foot of our hill it was floating in the air and it was scanning weaving a path around as it headed east
9: what did it look like did it make any noise
8: no no noise it was completely silent It was a white sphere. It it wasn't big. No bigger than a beach ball, I guess. The glow was ugly, like hospital lighting. It lit up the valley. When it appeared, my teeth started aching like crazy, and Bonnie's whining stopped, and she just lay there all flat, as close to the floor as she could get, staring. Never seen her like that before or since.
9: Neil got up to fetch another round, and no one protested. The story went on.
8: Anyway, I was watching that first one when another two shot into the valley. They looked exactly the same. The two new lights flanked off to the sides and they started scanning the hillsides, working their way up.
9: Why do you keep saying scanning, scanned? I mean, what gave you that impression?
8: The way they were moving. They would go one way and then double back, heading east all the while. It was methodical. Imagine how a mosquito seeks you out, making turns in the air, winding and closer. It was like that. It wasn't all, though. It was the feeling I got, fight or flight, emphasis on the flight. I knew they were looking for something, not specifically looking for me, but that I would do the job nicely. What job? I don't know. Like I said, I just knew that it would do something to me if it could. It would hurt me, I don't know. I didn't want to find out, so I clipped the lead back onto Bonnie and ran back down to Graston, dragging her. took her days to start acting herself. Never saw the lights again, thank God.
9: Andy drained his glass while we hung on to the story for a moment longer. For all the earlier ribbing, David and Neil seemed spooked. It was still daylight beneath a crisp October sky. The young people in the pub laughed and chatted, but the presence of the uncanny lingered at our table.
8: I take it that you're really here to write about the lights?
9: Yeah, I am. I work for a small-time magazine, nothing flash.
8: And I'm sure you don't believe a word of what I just said, like these two.
9: Actually, I do believe you. Well, more accurately, I believe that this memory was absolutely real to Andy. Over the years, I had heard obvious misidentifications, meticulously plotted encounters retold by bad actors, schizophrenic conspiracy theories, and the preaching of glassy-eyed UFO cultists, each with their own distinctive whiff of bullshit. This story had none of the usual red flags, and Andy's subdued fear rang true. Finishing my pint, I realized I was a bit too pissed to get back to Kennick. Andy offered me a guest bedroom at his place, and I accepted. After a quick call with my B&B host to explain the change of plans, we said goodbye to David and Neil and began the walk home. Outside the post office, Andy stopped and turned to me.
8: Don't mention my story to the wife. It'd be best if you didn't bring that topic up at all. There's this one guy, Frank, who lives nearby. He's obsessed. The light has all kinds of ideas i don't want rachel thinking i've gone nuts too frank hume that's the one he'll talk your ear off about it if he can corner you in the pub and those campus saw them the other week he was there the next day talking to the witnesses taking notes he takes it all very seriously
9: can i meet him
8: sure it's not like he's got anything else going on i'll walk you over to his in the morning and you can introduce yourself i hope you're a good listener
9: he smiled for a moment, but his features slowly clouded over.
8: Frank's got his own ideas and theories, but he hasn't really experienced what's happening out there. Don't get swept up in his enthusiasm. Don't actually try to see these things. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea.
9: I nodded, knowing that I would betray this promise at the first opportunity. In the morning, Andy and I walked over to the Hume place. Frank Hume lived half a mile outside the village in a gloomy little cottage, set back from the lane behind a square garden of overgrown grass. It was cloaked in the shadows of a small wooded hill that loomed over the house like a breaking wave. Pinned to the front door was a sheet of paper and a clear plastic wallet, which I leaned in to read before knocking. It was a scrawled rant signed by Mr. Hume, an ugly string of curses aimed at the Kennick Comet staff. As I inspected the note, the door suddenly swung inwards and caught on the chain with a loud clash. I stumbled back a few steps, startled. In the dark space, peering out, was a puffy-faced man in his 60s, with roomy eyes and a nose traced with burst blood vessels. Fuck off. But then he noticed Andy standing behind me.
10: Oh, you are right, mate?
9: All good, Frank.
10: This is my mate, Jack.
9: Frank's eyes returned to me.
10: What does your mate want, Andy? He wants to talk to you about the lights. Well, after the week
9: I've had, the fuck-off stands. Jack is different, Frank. He writes for the... what's it called again? New Lands magazine. Frank's ugly scowl immediately disappeared. New lands? Really? Fucking good stuff. He fumbled with the chain and pulled the door all the way open. He was wearing a dressing gown over a stained vest and tracksuit bottoms. He ran a hand through his long, yellowing silver hair. Are you Jack Preston then? I was a little taken aback. This didn't happen often. That's me.
10: Good stuff, fucking good stuff. I'm rescinding the fuck off, by the way. Both of you, come on in.
9: He gestured with a sweep of his arm to a dim, cluttered hallway.
8: Now I'm off, actually, Frank. I told Rachel I'd get started on the washer today. Things buggered. I just thought I'd introduce you to Jack. Oh, no worries, mate.
9: Come on in then, Jack. Frank then turned around and walked down the hall. Andy winked at me, smirking, then left. I followed Frank and closed the door behind me. The hall and the staircase to my right were littered with piles of books. I glanced at a stack by my feet. The top book was titled The Trickster's Lanterns by Francis J. Hume. The cover showed the long Meg stone circle with a glowing sphere of light above it. There was a leering, demonic face within the orb. Yeah, that's one of mine. He had returned from the room at the end of the hall with two cans of lager in his hands. He handed me one then cracked his own open. It was 10 in the morning. Frank opened the door to my left and entered a shabby living room. He dropped down onto one of the battered leather couches with a sigh, and I took the other. Cheers. Frank raised his can. We tapped them together. I've been reading
10: Newlands for years, mate. One of the few good ones left.
9: Oh, cheers. I took a reluctant sip of lukewarm lager.
10: You're a bit of a skeptic, right?
9: He paused, studying me.
10: It comes across in your work. You're not a sucker
9: like Collier. I smiled. My colleague was a true believer, all right. Yeah, but don't get the wrong impression. I'm not here to pick the story apart. I just want to hear your side of it. It seems like you're the man to speak to.
10: Yeah. I guess I'm the guy. I take it you read the note on the front door? I did. Last week, when those campers saw the lights, some kid from the Comet was here. Heard about me, came to talk to me. I laid out my ideas, gave him the history, he printed some other shite, said I'd talked about alien abductions. Fuck off! Absolute fucking bollocks!
9: I was going to ask about that, actually. I saw the article.
10: I'm sure it made me sound like your average nut talking about spaceships and the Greys and getting probed.
9: I didn't say anything. Frank reached under the coffee table and grabbed a copy of his book, placing it on the tabletop between us. A quick scan of the room revealed a few other copies of the same volume littered about, doubtless pumped out on mass by some vanity press.
10: So, first of all, we're not talking about UFOs. The term UFO is so muddled with bullshit, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, abductions and conspiracies. I want you to forget that framework and think in more ethereal terms.
9: He noisily slurped at his beer. I nodded. I was familiar with this stance. Frank wasn't the first paranormal writer to substitute alien bullshit with spiritual bullshit. In fact, a shift away from materialism had become an increasingly trendy approach to fringe topics that seemed reluctant to offer up physical evidence. Even Bigfoot was being discussed more and more as an otherworldly visitor. God forbid that these people reached the other adjacent conclusion, that none of this stuff existed. Frank jabbed a nicotine-stained finger at the open, double-page spread, with little black-and-white photographs of standing stones and medieval woodcuttings.
10: In the folklore of Cumbria, we see fairies, sylphs, whatever you want to call them, feared, revered, going way back to the earliest human habitation. Throughout this time, we've got stories here and there about folk who stumbled out onto the fairy paths at the wrong time. Deaths, miscarriages, mental breakdowns. Over in Ravenglass, the fairy king Eveling's name was whispered well into the 1500s, but the language shifted with time. Later, most talk of fairies falls away, and we have more reports of will-o'-the-wisps or corpse lights out on the hills, sometimes leading travellers astray, sometimes
9: worse. Frank flicked a few pages ahead, pointing to a grainy photograph of a mutilated cow.
10: The folklore continues to evolve until we get to today. UFOs, the extraterrestrial shite, it's all irrelevant. The truth is that throughout all of this, we're talking about the same things, the same underlying power, the trickster.
9: He let the name hang for a moment for dramatic effect before he went on.
10: It's some kind of elemental force, identified and named a thousand times over by every culture on earth. Sometimes it's a spirit, sometimes it's a god, sometimes it's a visitor from the stars. Whatever it is, whatever mask we choose to give it, it's always been here. It's always interacted with us in ways that often don't make much sense to us.
9: I had heard it all before. I drank some more. Frank was already rambling and I foresaw a few painful hours going down this rabbit hole with him. I decided to steer the conversation a little, and pulled my notebook and pen from my jacket pocket. I'm familiar with these ideas, I've read Vale's stuff. Let's talk about the Graston light specifically. All
10: right, mate, I don't want to waste your time. I know you want to get back to London.
9: He sneered.
10: But this is the real deal. You've spent your career having your time wasted, but here, you can have a peek behind the veil. Get a good look at the beyond in a birthday suit.
9: Frank's greying teeth glistened. A wide grin cleaved his toad-like face. I knew that Frank relished his role as the expert, and that if I let the silence hang for a moment, he would spill his guts.
10: Ten years ago, I found one of their victims up on the hill. Hold on. Victims. I thought you said there were no abductions I didn't say anything about an abduction did I I didn't say anything about abductions to the Kennick Comet either I found this local boy Connor Trent face down in the mud up there near the woods he was turning blue
9: Frank drained the rest of his beer and crushed the can before setting it back on the table
10: I'd heard of a few sightings that month. Three or four tourists, one local who wasn't keen on talking about it. I started heading out every night to look for the lights myself. It was early days, I was just scratching the surface of this story and hadn't seen them with my own eyes yet. Then, that night, I saw one of the things rocketing down the hill, flashing between the trees. I just knew it had done its work. I knew I would find someone up there.
9: You're the second person to talk about their work. Frank's eyes lifted slowly to meet mine. Andy? I nodded. He won't tell me anything. I jotted some quick bullet points down in my notebook. So, what did the boy experience?
10: I don't really know, and I don't think he really knew either. I knew his mum, Donna, you see, and she told me the few things he pieced together in the days following... The light ran him down while he was out playing in the hills and the rest was a blur. He remembered being hurt and being laughed at, said it felt like lots of people were hurting him, hurting him and enjoying
9: it. I felt a sudden chill at this detail. It was nothing, a skeleton of a second-hand story at best, crude and bare. But I was disturbed by it all the same. Does the boy still live in
10: Graston? No, I've got no idea where either of the Trents are. They left a few months after that. I've not heard from them since.
9: I didn't know what had changed, but in those last few minutes, I'd begun to feel as if there was something to all this. There was a truth in Frank's somber turn, a genuine edge to the dread that saturated this account, a wrongness to it. There was the sense that real malignancy lay coiled in the center of these events, and for the first time in my career... I felt that I was approaching something it'd be wiser to walk away from. I ignored this feeling. What did he mean when you said I could have a peek behind the veil? Frank smiled, an uneasy smile.
10: I think I can show
9: you them. How?
10: Got an idea, something I've wanted to try for a while now. I think we could get their attention.
9: We were alone together, beyond the woods outside Graston, across the fields. Bare fells rose on either side of us, washed in a pallet of greys, beneath the sickly light of a waning moon. The drizzle was as weak as it was relentless, soaking my clothes where it fell as light as breath. Frank held a black chicken by its legs in one hand. He had fished the wretched thing from a coop in his back garden that evening, and brought it across the empty fields in a canvas bag under the light of our head torches the bird's sodden black feathers had an oily sheen it stretched two ragged wings and wriggled clucking discontentedly but gave up its struggle fairly quickly frank glowered from beneath the hood of his waterproof as he slipped a twine loop over one of the chicken's legs he pulled it tight and fumbled in his pocket for the rest of the line, which was tethered to a short iron stake. Squatting, he pushed the stake into the mud and placed the bird delicately on the ground. A moment later, it took to its feet and fled, coming to an abrupt halt as the string snapped taut.
10: The law tells us that an offering of food acts as a kind of protective charm. I'm hoping this'll be more than enough.
9: Frank had told me this earlier, as he bundled the animal into its bag. I had gone along with his plan, not really expecting any harm to come to his pet. It all felt different now. Dread had curdled in my stomach, where it settled heavy and cold. The chicken stood still, facing the pale expanse beyond the outer limits of our torch glow. I felt with a growing certainty that something was going to accept our offering. And that the bird was going to die. Frank must have felt the same affirmation. He was silent, a grim slit of a mouth set in a blanched face like fresh dough. We both stared at the doomed chicken. I knew that I had to leave, to turn around right then and march back to the relative sanity of civilization. Within a few minutes of making the offering, my mind had shed its layers of modern detritus, becoming something more primal, something which now stood naked before the pale hills. Strange thoughts came to me, but dissipated like smoke before I could make any real sense of them. I imagined an unseen power rushing towards us, something that had once held sway in some lost fiefdom, an authority whose arrival we were completely unprepared for. I glanced over at Frank and saw that his eyes were closed. His lips trembled and he muttered some quiet incantation to himself. The air had changed. My teeth began to hurt and within seconds it felt like I was biting down on steel. It came around the foot of a hill about half a mile away, heralded by a white glow. Hanging above the valley floor like a lost star, it weaved languidly as it moved. It was perfectly spherical and perfectly silent. Its halo throbbed arrhythmically, casting weird shadows up the slopes. It came our way. The dread immediately crystallized into terror, but my unresponsive legs felt like twin pillars of stone. I couldn't blink. I couldn't look away and my stinging eyes began to scream. Through the tears, I felt the light meet my gaze, turning a great awareness on me. Heat spread through the soaked denim that clung to my thighs. I pissed myself. (gasps) It was right before us now, regarding us, seething with an unknowable force. My teeth were buzzing, vibrating in my gums. On the verge of shattering. The light approached the chicken and descended, hovering before the transfixed animal. And in that moment, two more lights entered the narrow valley, swinging around the feet of the hills and heading towards us at speed. They came to a dead stop, some distance behind the first light. Frank's breathing was shallow, harsh, panting. I could pick out some words of his incantations between the frantic breaths. I think he was reciting the Lord's Prayer. Suddenly, the first light began to pulse wildly, throbbing with an excited intensity, and the chicken began to shriek. The light's pulses transformed into a blazing magnesium glare. I squinted through it and continued to watch as the offering was accepted. The chicken's gargling, strangled scream rose to an ear-splitting volume as the dark feathers along its back were parted by a glossy, crimson strip of blood. And with a violent jerk, its split skin was pulled forwards, over, engulfing its head. The chicken rose above the ground, floating in the air like a balloon, still tethered by a length of string. Its flensed body doubled over with a sickening crunch. Before my eyes, the levitating bird shrank beneath the white light, folding over and over upon itself, into itself, with a series of atrocious sounds. With each fold, a spurt of thick, dark blood fell and mingled with the scattered feathers. In a matter of seconds, all that remained of the chicken was a small puddle of mess in the mud, beside the severed tether. Having finished its work... The light rose from the sight of the offering and hovered in the air at head height. It dimmed slightly, falling back into a glow the color of exposed bone, then left us, flying back the way it came, towards its two accomplices. Frank breathed deep, forcing the air in and out of his lungs with pronounced effort. I realized that I could move again, and I looked over at him, making eye contact for the first time in minutes. He looked waxy, pallid, and his upper lip twitched like a cadaveric spasm in a living face. He managed to flash me a ghastly, humorless smile. Something in Frank's peripheral vision seemed to catch his attention, and he looked over in the direction of the distant lights with a star. His eyes widened, his lips peeled away from his teeth, and he began to scream. The other two lights were moving towards us.
10: No, we made an offering.
9: He turned and ran. It had been raining all night, gauzy sheets of water that you could tune out after a while. After a few hours, it had amounted to a deluge. Frank's feet immediately churned up the thick mud and he lurched forward a few steps in the slow motion gait of a nightmare before he slipped and fell hard on his face. One of the lights closed the distance in seconds, brightening fiercely as it approached his prone body. Frank turned his dirty face over his shoulder to scream wordlessly at it, his eyes and bared teeth shining within a black mask. He tried to right himself, but the light settled on his back and pressed him deeper into the churning earth, turning his screams into gurgles. I watched this unfold in a dumb, detached state. The light that sped towards me felt like a hurricane when it hit, lifting me off my feet with its impossible strength. It drove me back to the earth, crushing the wind out of me and pinned me down beside my struggling companion. I turned my head to gulp at the wet night air as I sank into the sludge. I kicked and writhed. I tried to grab the incorporeal form on my back, but my twisted arms only passed through empty air. I was able to struggle like that for a moment. Then I was relocated. The light began its work. I experienced absolute dehumanization and humiliation. It was a savaging that tore away at a previously unknown part of myself, sustained and amplified in cycles that seemed to stretch through impossible spans of time. To try to recount the event beyond this brief description would be futile. Frank and I awoke at the same time, in the thin light of dawn. My tongue was thick, dry, and I tasted iron. I raised myself up on one elbow and scanned the area, noticing the little stake leaning from the ground nearby. We hadn't moved. Frank turned over onto his back, slowly got to his feet, and began walking in silence. I got up and followed. He was pale and filthy. Under the mask of dried mud his nose was visibly crushed, its pulpy ruin bent off to one side. He shivered in his wet clothes as we walked back to Graston. We didn't exchange a word until we were just outside the village, beside a stream that ran on towards the Kent. He stumbled over to its bank and fell to his knees, cupping water in his shaking hands and drinking greedily. I joined him. When we finished, we sat staring into space for a long time.
10: I never got it right.
9: I looked at him. He was still staring straight ahead. I waited for him to continue.
10: Do you think our feelings, the thoughts that come into our head, are always produced by us?
9: I didn't answer. I wasn't capable of speaking yet. Frank turned his head and looked through me.
10: You must have been taken by an urge before, we all have. Something truly out of character, something powerful and irresistible. When something else takes your body and uses it for its own ends.
9: A robin sang from the bushes downstream.
10: Artistic inspiration, a stroke of genius, love at first sight, bloodlust, rage,
9: hate. I tried to grip his shoulder reassuringly, but he shrugged it off and, with some difficulty, got to his feet. Perhaps
10: whatever is responsible for these feelings can come uncoupled, separated from its vessels, from us.
9: He began to turn about pacing in a tiny circle on the stream bank. I noticed for the first time that he was barefoot and his feet were turning a greyish blue.
10: Little pieces of feeling with nowhere to go, just
9: floating. He pointed a clawed hand to a fallen branch that blocked part of the stream across from us. A raft of dark leaves, sticks and refuse had gathered against its mossy side.
10: Maybe they'd drift on out into the world. Maybe they drift into others like them, coalescing into something new.
9: Frank trailed off into silence and marched away towards the roofs of the village. Pale smoke rose vertically from a single chimney into the hard, cloudless sky, and Frank aligned his stumbling path with this way marker. I followed again. We made it back to Frank's without passing another soul. Inside, he immediately fetched a half-drained bottle of cheap whiskey and poured out two glasses for us in the living room. This time, I eagerly accepted the drink, and we were both on our second before he spoke again.
10: Write what you want, but don't write about that.
4: What?
9: It was the first word I had spoken that morning, and my body responded with a bolt of white pain through my skull. I winced.
10: You know what? You can't talk about this. I never understood the people of this fucking village never taking this seriously. Now I wonder how many of them have been caught up in this, seeing what we've seen and just, just didn't want to draw any more attention to it.
9: I thought about Andy's warning just two days prior. Had he hoped that a meeting with a colorful eccentric would keep me clear of the grim reality? Perhaps he had spotted an opportunity. A tidy fluff piece about a local UFO enthusiast would protect myself and others from exposure to whatever patrolled Graston's Hills each night. I spoke slowly, around my swollen tongue, through my blinding headache. Do you care what I write about you? Frank drank his whiskey and put the glass down on top of a closed copy of his book. He shook his head. The article I wrote was a complete fantasy. I described how I had followed up on that Kenick Comet story and met with a manic UFO fanatic named Frank Hume. I wove some wacky conspiracy theories for my fictional Frank to rattle off in an unhinged rant and even added a rather definitive ending to the tale wherein I uncovered a modified consumer drone in Frank's garage. It was as tidy a fluff piece as any, and Marianne congratulated me for the bittersweet comedy I had spun from a disappointing trip. I accepted the minor praise I received, and spent a lot of time thinking about the isolated old man I had turned into a caricature. I never returned to Graston, but whenever I find myself walking alone at night, I feel the pull from those distant hills. Something reaches across woods and moors, across the black patchwork of parceled land and sleeping towns, and winds its way through the brightly lit streets of nocturnal London towards me. It beckons, urging me to come and fall back into whatever horrible embrace had engulfed me on that secret night. When I look out upon empty countryside, I lock eyes with something distant and hidden. Even beneath the cleansing light of the sun, whenever I leave the buildings and streetlights and cars and modernity behind me, I can feel that predatory stare piercing the many miles I keep between us. I don't want to remember everything that happened. I know I will never publish the true story. I won't refute my own lies. I suppose I need to keep a record of these events for my own peace of mind to serve as a reminder that what plagues me has a very real source. There is something outside Gruston. Something more than the village's shared secret. Something that stalks in the spaces between waking hours and the spaces between human dwellings. I would like to believe its work is done but I don't think it ever will be.
0: The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member.